We're going to be in Colossians, both chapters 2 and 3 today. We're going to start in 2, and I invite you to follow along this morning. This is the final uh, sermon in the series we've been talking about, Putting on the Mind of Christ uh, and Thinking Like Jesus. We obviously didn't cover everything one could in that, but we've spent some time in some key New Testament parts uh, looking at that. So today we kind of round that out. Colossians 2.13 uh, our key verse is actually going to be from 3, but 2.13 sets it up where Paul says something important for us to catch. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. When you were dead in your sins, is what Paul says. And this kind of functions as a bookend to what's going to happen in chapter 3. When you were dead in your sins, what's that like? When you're dead in your sins. I want to start with a sad story to talk about that and then move on from there. Uh, when a num- quite a number of years ago, Stephanie, my wife Stephanie and I were first considering doing foster care. We were living in Colorado at the time, so we went to one of the orientations to find out what is this thing, what are you getting into? And as they went through the orientation process, uh, they were talking about, well, you'll have a home study if this is what you do, and here's what happens in the home study, and you've got to lock up your medications. And somebody, you know, rightly asked, well, why would you need to do something like that, like lock up your medications? So the, the facilitator gave an example. She said, this isn't the reason, but this is typical of the reason why. She said there was a, a sibling group of four that went into a foster home, and they all got put to bed one night, and after they'd been put to bed, the foster mom found uh, the oldest of these elementary school children in the medicine cabinet, getting the cough medicine and pouring out doses for everyone, all the kids in the family. And they said, why are you doing this? You don't need, why, you don't need cough medicine, nobody's sick. And the little girl said, it's because we, I used, this was my job. My mom used to go out and party and I gave everybody cough medicine so everybody would fall asleep right away. The foster family, of course, told her, that's not your life anymore. You don't need to do that anymore. When you're dead in your sins, sometimes you can't see that you're dead in your sins because it seems normal. But you kind of know it's not normal. You kind of know it's not right. When you're alive in Christ, all of a sudden you're going to see the world differently and you're going to function in the world differently. When you were dead in your sins, Paul says. But then he says, he says in Colossians 3 something different. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. When you follow Jesus, you see a transformation occurs. Your mind begins to think differently as Jesus gets in there and changes who we are. We are no longer dead in our sins, but raised in Christ. Disciples of Christ, then, are people who set their hearts and minds on things above. And when Paul says those words, hearts, he uses both hearts and minds. The simple translation of that is everything you are. Every ounce of who you are is set on things above, on what God wants. That's 
what you are now. When he says things above, that's the will of God. That is what is true. That's what he's talking about. And it's not just a new you like we sometimes use in our culture. You know, you can get a sort of a new you through a diet or a set of smoothies or a cleanse or something like that, or through taking classes or waking up earlier as your New Year's resolution. It's something much deeper than that. It's a full life transformation from the inside out that only comes through Jesus. And one other thing that's important, when Paul says you and your in this passage, he doesn't just mean you, he means you, the people who follow Christ. He means the church. And so we're going to talk both this morning in individual terms, but it also has ramifications for the church. So we're going to talk about both as we move forward. But I think it's interesting. You, you set your hearts on things above, your minds on things above, not on earthly things, Paul says. What are earthly things? And Paul will outline that for us in just a moment. But we can see, just as we began with, you were dead in your transgressions. A couple weeks ago, we talked out of Colossians 1, verse 21. Paul says, once you were alienated from God. That's what happens when you're dead in your transgressions. You were alienated from God because in your minds because of your evil behavior. Misguided behavior to misguided minds, that's what happens. Your whole self, Paul says, was in opposition to God. You may have acted like parts of it weren't, but your whole self was in opposition to God, Paul says. And we can see that sometimes we try and justify that self being in contradiction to God with a little bit of good behavior, just a dose. You'll hear people say this, maybe you yourself have said this, that I did my good deed for the day. Meaning, God's off my back, I can do whatever I want now. I did my good deed for the day. And you'll hear people say this somewhat jokingly, but kind of serious too, right? I did my good deed for the day. St. Augustine, in his great work, Confessions, in the 300s, he writes something very startling in the first couple pages of that, and it's very famous. He writes about when he was an infant, and he points out that even from infancy, his heart was turned towards his own needs and his own needs only. And you can contend with him on, you know, that's what a baby does, all that kind of thing. You can have that conversation, so to speak, with Augustine. But he also points out, we don't really grow out of that unless we're taught something different. That's why even, uh, you can argue with it, but you can recognize that we don't have to teach selfishness to kids. We have to teach how to share. Because our hearts from the beginning are turned inward and think about ourselves, and we're selfish from a very early age, if not from right on, however you want to argue it. Paul then talks about what those earthly things are, that self turned in on itself, verses 5 through 10. Of chapter 3, Paul says, put to death. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I do find it interesting as you look at the list. Paul has two separate lists, and we'll, we'll take them in a couple pieces in a moment. We're not going to go through every word. 
But he's got two separate lists. He says, you, you used to live this way. Now you've got to put off these, which is very interesting to me. We're not going to dwell on it long, but he says, now you've got to put off these. He's writing to the church and he's saying, you guys actually have some of these things living in you, it seems like, even though you follow Christ. So I think that's important to recognize that the earthly things and living not in a heavenly way, even when we choose to follow Christ, we can sometimes slip into those patterns because they're so pervasive. And that's why he's saying, put to death those things. Be raised with Christ. When he says, put your mind on earthly things, what he's saying is that we're enslaved to those things. That's what he's telling us. We're enslaved to unhealthy desires and behaviors that are contrary to God. They're contrary to God, and they're actually also contrary to who God made us to be. God didn't intend for us to live this way. And yet we do if we're living on these earthly things or in these earthly ways. They become actions, attitudes, thoughts that we shouldn't feed, and yet we do. So I'm going to put them in three simple lists that seem to go together, and we'll just focus on one thing from each. Paul talks about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and greed, which he says is idolatry. I would just simply say they're all idolatry because they're all basically worshiping our feelings. They're all basically worshiping what I want to do is what is best, and that's the choice I'm going to make because it makes me feel the way I want to feel, regardless of what God wants, regardless of how God intended for me to work, for my body and soul to function. And so we worship our feelings and ourselves. Paul talks about evil desires and malice. He puts those together. They're in two separate lists, if you notice. It's actually the same word at its root that he's using. Evil desires, we did cover a couple weeks ago. It's worth pointing out again. Uh, when Paul says evil desires, he, he's not simply talking about the worst inclinations of the worst people ever. He's just saying anything that's contrary to God's will. That which isn't good is in the evil category. And thus, if we're not doing something good, it can be in that category right away. If it's the opposite of God's will and intent, it's evil desires. But specifically, Paul talks about malice in that second list, which is interesting. Malice is just taking evil desires and aiming it at someone. That's what it is. It's the intent to cause trouble and harm and do evil aimed at other people is what it is. With that evil root working within us. And we can easily think, that this is the stuff of mass shootings and awful atrocities, that that's all evil desires is, and that's the only people who would do that kind of thing. But if I may point out, uh, within office environments and church environments, we can easily succumb to things like rumors and gossip that then take on a life of their own, and then people get evil desires towards one another based on half-truths, partial truths, based on something that shouldn't have happened in the first place. The third list we could put is anger, rage, and really those two go together, right? Anger, uh, rage is just anger violently outburst at someone. Slander and filthy language, that's really anything coarse, dirty talk, lewd, all of that kind of stuff is in that category. But I'd focus on slander for a moment, and the word actually is blasphemy. That's, that's in the original, the, the word that we get blasphemy from, which is defaming God or mocking God, but here it's aimed at people. And I think this, by the way, is other than being violent, is one of the worst things you can do to one another slander. 
to defame someone's character. It's sort of the classic example of, of somebody coming up to, you know, saying to somebody, well, when did you stop beating your wife? Well, I didn't. But now the thought's out there in the world. Now you can't take it back. Now somebody thinks that's the truth, even though it's completely false. It's an insidious and awful thing to do. And it's malicious, so it goes with malice, too. But not to dwell on all those, the reason to think about all of these and think about why are these so bad? And of course, this isn't the full list of things we could do that are the opposite of God's will, but why are these so bad? I think Paul highlights it in verse 9. He says, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. All these behaviors amount to living a life that is a lie. God created, and it was good. God intended for us to do good. And anything less than that is not what God intended, and we're living a lie. And living this way is lying about God's intent for your heart, soul, and mind, and it also, since we're talking not just about individual, but about the church, it also creates a community of liars if we live this way. That's why it's so bad. That's why Paul highlights these things. He says, don't do this. You put off your old self. You've been raised with Christ. The old self needs to die because otherwise we're lying about what God intended. And we're doing it with our actions, not just our words and the attitudes of our heart. We really need full transformation. That's why Paul's saying, put to death and be raised with Christ. Don't let this stuff hang around anymore in your life. Let Christ fully in. Let the Holy Spirit start doing his work within you. We need full transformation because our tendency is to live the lie. Far too easily we live the lie. And we can just season it with just enough truth to feel good. Sort of like going back to that, I did my good deed for the day. The way I think we see this uh, sort of flagrantly shown in our culture is when a celebrity or someone famous says something that insults an entire group of people or is perceived to insult, and then they cover it by saying, I'm going to donate a bunch of money to that group of people, and then it's covered up, right? We can do this kind of thing. We can just, just season it with just enough good so that that full transformation isn't really occurring. We kind of inoculate ourselves from it. And what I want to suggest is we could try and self-medicate the problem, really. We try and fix it ourselves just with enough. Just with enough to make us feel good, like we're doing the right thing. And this would be in the category of what we would call dualism, is how we do this. That we have compartmentalization in our lives. I have a spiritual category, and I have a physical category. And that's it. And those things don't touch, just like your dessert and your entree on your plate. Don't let them touch. Spiritual's here. Work, family, other things are here. And I'll give you an example of, of how I saw this play out in somebody's life just this week. I had a, we had somebody come in uh, last week, actually, and do some work for us here at the church on some stuff. And he came in, did some work one day, and then he had to go. Uh, and so he had, he had already opened up the door to some grief and things going on in his life as he's doing some work around the church. And I didn't even have to be a pastor to get in that conversation. Any of you could have had that conversation with him. He was ready to talk. Comes back the next day. I've been praying about it all night. God, I really want an open door to talk and go further with this. You know, I invited him to church, and that was kind of a, a he didn't, didn't really take it. Um, but, you know, I invite all the time. Um, and we talked about a lot of things, but it was so fascinating. At one point, 
uh, I said, well, you know, he, he had some hurt from the church from the past, so we talked about that. And I said, well, what's your wife's religious background? And he said, I don't know. Like it wasn't even a curiosity in his life. I don't know. Never asked. They weren't newly married. They'd been married for a long time. Never asked. That's compartmentalization. That we'd have one thing in one category and one thing in another category, and those things don't need to touch. They don't have anything to do with each other. And we can self-medicate the problem of, of not quite being fully transformed in Jesus Christ, not quite putting ourselves fully in, by compartmentalizing in that way. It's dualism is what it is. We've got, we just fill enough of the spiritual category to feel okay and move on, and then we've got to fill it again every so often, but we're never really full all the way. And there's two ways that I see this happening. One hits the churchy crowd pretty hard, and one hits the non-churchy crowd. And legalism is the way we do it in the churchy crowd. And that's what Paul is actually dealing with to some degree here. That's preferred by churchy people is legalism. So in verses 16 and 20, and I think just 16 will come up on the screen of chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. Paul also says in verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Then he goes on, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And talks about some of those rules. We can sometimes try and just fill that religious category just enough to feel kind of spiritually uh, fulfilled, and then we'll have to do it again by doing things like just attending church just enough, just praying at meals or praying just enough or reading just enough uh, a verse here or there of scripture, serving a little bit here, giving a little bit here to make us feel better, or even just the broad category of living right, living Christian-ish, so it looks generally moral and we feel like we've poured enough into the spiritual category. Those are the ways that we can kind of do that, where our heart maybe hasn't been fully transformed, but it feels like we're kind of on the right track for the most part. And we do that, and we kind of expect that better things will happen more than worse things will happen when we do that. That's why we fill it just enough so that it seems like we'll have fewer bad things and a few more good things. The most extreme way I heard somebody uh, do this was when I was a hospital chaplain and some, a, a woman in her 90s was dying in her hospital bed and she said, why is this happening to me? She was in a lot of pain, she was alone. Why is this happening to me? I went to church my whole life so this wouldn't happen. She was trying to fill the spiritual category. It didn't do what she wanted it to do because it can't, that's why. It just can't. We haven't actually put to death if all we're trying to do is just fill the spiritual category. The other way it happens is to the spiritual but not religious crowd that is syncretism. It's kind of piecing together your own religion. Paul in verse 18, which is a bit of a conundrum, uh, but we'll read it anyways. Paul says, Do not let anybody who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have not seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Uh, you know, there obviously was interest in angels and people worshipped them and all kinds of stuff. But basically, people around us will try and piece together their own religious system to have that sense of feeling spiritually fulfilled, self-medicating the problems around us. Self-medicating the problem of sin within them, but not actually getting to the solution. I've met plenty of people like this kind of with the belief that all roads lead to the same place anyways. If I just take cultural things and if I just take spiritual things that I see from all kinds of systems, put them together, it'll work. 
And so we try and self-medicate the problem of sin and the problem of the fact of our alienation from God, but it won't work. And Paul actually tells us right in the text why it won't work. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says, such regulations, and he's been talking to the legalism crowd, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. And here's the key. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They can't solve the problem. You haven't gotten to the root. You've just treated a few symptoms is the problem. And I know working with, not a lot, but in the past with people who have dealt with addiction, if you've worked in 12-step programs or anything like that, maybe you've had experience with this, you can get an example of what Paul's talking about here with people who are dry versus people who are sober. If you've ever dealt with somebody who's an alcoholic or hooked on drugs. If you're dry, you solved, solved the problem by just stopping the action. But you didn't get to what caused you to do the problem in the first place. If you're sober, you dealt with the underlying problem. Why did I go to the bottle in the first place? Why did I get attracted to drugs or whatever behavior it was in the first place? What was I medicating, is the question you're asking. And how do I solve that? The problem, the reason that these don't work to try and self-medicate the problem is because when temptation comes, it's still going to get you. Because you haven't put to death the sinful nature through Christ. It's still living and alive in you, even if it's repressed. If you don't follow Christ... That's the world you're in. And if you do follow Christ, we can still get pulled down from time to time. I know as uh, I use Colossians 3, 1 through 4 a lot, when I'm going through moments where temptation could overcome, where something could pull me down away from the mind of Christ, I, I recite that in my mind quite regularly. So that I'm actually actively saying, okay, spirit, get in there work on this part of me so that I'm not pulled down trying to self-medicate or do any of these other things on the list, but that I'm raised with Christ, truly. And as I said, the you and the your that Paul's using in this uh, pushes us to the, the realization that this isn't just an individual project that's going on since you've been raised with Christ. This is, a, this is an everybody project. I ran into this quote from Ambrose, writing in the 300s, it's, it's a lot to take in. I'll just highlight the end part in a moment. But he says, Ambrose says, Therefore, as on the cross, it was not the fullness of the Godhead, but our weakness that was brought, in, brought in, into subjection. So also will the Son hereafter become subject to the Father in his participation in our nature. He says, The intention is that God may be all to us if we live after his image and likeness, as far as we can attain to it through all. And here's the key. The benefit, he's talking about the benefits of Christ, being raised with Christ. The benefit has passed then from the individual to the community. For in his flesh, he has tamed the nature of all human flesh. If we're going to put on the mind of Christ, we need full transformation from death to life. We need to be raised with Christ, just as Paul is saying. If you have made, uh, if you haven't made the decision to follow Christ... Then the question is, actually, that was the question. I'm very sorry. Have you made the decision? That was my question. Have you made the decision to die to self and rise? 
I mean, think it through to yourself, even, if you've said yes to Jesus Christ. Is that the decision that you actually made? Was the decision to die to self and rise with Christ or just be a slightly better you in control? Just self-medicate the problem. If you have made the decision to die to self and rise with Christ, how do we develop that mind of Christ intentionally? How do we as God's people and as individual and collective do that? Paul talks further about that, and we'll round it out with this last section here, 12 through 17. We won't take long on it. Chapter 3, 12 through 17, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul talks about a few things. Let's highlight just a couple. Clothe yourselves with Christ. You can see the list that's there. It's a very giving and generous list. Ultimately, be giving and forgiving. That's what the peace of Christ ruling within us looks like. He's got specific things that he says there, but it's being giving and forgiving towards one another. The peace of Christ must rule among us. It's got to start with our hearts individually, and his peace is generous and humble. Paul talks about singing with gratitude to God. I have worshipped in a lot of different settings, and I know that music is always one of those things that animates people, both uh, positively and sometimes uh, 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 we can have disagreements, is a simple way to put it. Um, but I've worshipped in a lot of places, and even if I haven't, it hasn't been the song that I preferred, I can still be there with gratitude. I can still sing with gratitude in my heart to God. And that's what Paul tells us. He doesn't tell us, sing this specific style this way at this time. He says, sing together with gratitude in your heart. That's all he says. And do it. And do it a lot. That tells us a lot about what's going on inside of us. Paul says, pray and encourage one another. And he's telling us that when there's disunity, we should pray. When there's unity, what should we also do? Pray. We should also encourage one another. As we leave today, we should encourage one another, just like we did during the service. And Paul says, and we'll, we'll end on this, he says, be thankful. And if you notice, when he goes into verse chapter 4 as well, you can read that later, Paul keeps kind of prayer and be thankful together in a couple different spots. Pray, be thankful, be thankful, be thankful. And I think this is one of those uh, final sort of tests within us of whether or not Christ has done something within us. A number of years ago, I was a barista at Starbucks before I entered into ministry, and we had a lot of regulars at my store. We knew their drinks. We got them ready. We, when they were walking in the door, you could get them ready. It was a very busy place. Um, it was actually a lot of fun to do it. We had one regular particularly who, I don't know why she wanted it this way because it's disgusting. That's, you know, just my opinion. She wanted her milk at like 188 degrees or 1,000 or whatever it was, the hottest you can make it so that it's boiling over and it's really hard to make. 
uh, and it tastes gross at that point. You know, that's just a scientific fact. And so you'd make the drink for her, and she would know if it wasn't that disgustingly hot. And, and then come back to have you change it. And we had a number of customers like that. They, if they wanted it super cold, super hot, whatever it was, and they, they knew their regular drink so well, they'd come back and, and you'd fix it and that's fine, whatever they paid for the drink and all that kind of stuff. But it's real interesting that there often wasn't a sense of thankfulness about the drink. There was a sense of entitlement that goes with that. This week, as a complete contrast to that, as I was coming into the office on Monday, I was making my usual stop to, there's a prayer chapel down the street. I usually come in, stop there, pray for a while over the text, and then come in. And on my way to the chapel, I couldn't get through an intersection because somebody's truck had stalled, blocking both lanes of traffic going both ways. And you could tell they were flustered. This was not the morning that they wanted. And so I was able to, after working through it in my mind, pull over to the side, another person pulled over to the side, and we helped push them through the intersection, and they were thankful. The one who's been rescued is thankful, not entitled. We've been raised with Christ. We've been rescued from ourselves, from the opposite of what God wants, from death. And that's why Paul says, guess what you're supposed to look like? You're supposed to be the people who pray together, who sing together, who are thankful about all of this. That says you are the people who've been raised with Christ. And with that, let's pray together and let's sing as we close out the service. So worship band, come up and let's pray and sing. Lord, we're grateful that you've called us from death to life. And some of us in the room are sitting and some of us online are, are wondering where we are in that transition. May your Holy Spirit work on us right now. And if we don't know, may we just say yes to Jesus right now. Yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus. You are Lord of my life, and I believe you were raised from the dead, and you want to raise me too. If you're unsure, pray that. And Lord, for the rest of us who struggle sometimes, may we open ourselves up to your Spirit right now, that we would be raised with Christ, that those parts of us that seem unredeemed and even sometimes seem unredeemable would in fact be grasped by you and taken hold of and we would be transformed to have the mind of christ in all ways god we're not perfect yet but if we follow you we're wanting to be holy as you are holy as you've called us so make us holy lord make us right with you raise us with christ amen